Welcome to The Look Back, the newest podcast hosted by former journalist turned media executive and host Keith Newman. The Look Back provides insights, tips, and maybe a few laughs during a free-flowing conversation on that roller coaster ride that reflects the past, present, and future of the Silicon Valley and tech economy. Casey, we're live. It's great to see you. Oh, you know, Keith, I can't tell you how exciting it is to connect with you in, in this way. I'll take any way I can. Yeah. No, no, no. This is close, but you're right. When we And I'm going to cover off on some fun topics, but we had so much fun uh, in person together at so many of these events over so many different stops along the amazing journey. And I just love the fact you could take some time to catch up with me. I appreciate it. Oh, always a pleasure to look back. There's a, yeah, that rich history we shared I'd like to spend more time with you talking about it, but that's another story. Well, maybe we'll write a, a book or a movie or something next time we get together. Sorry I don't have the birthday cake. I, I do want to celebrate your life, and maybe this will be part of our celebration. Let me tell you something. I started in this business, you know, and you were one of the first folks that I met with. And I go back, gosh, our history together. You started with folks like Ken Phil. I'm going to mention K-Pro. Hey, Pro. Um, yeah. David, Computers David, Unlimited. And David K. down in San Diego, not far from where you are now. Not um, far. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, well, I want to mention Maricel because I think that the Maricel soft cell story is one that I think it was one of those developments in a moment in history that was so fundamental. But in the in the history that people tell, they talk about the products and the technologies and everything. But Casey, you championed <laughs> the whole movement from we're selling computers out of these computer lands and business lands. And you went out to the world and said, wait a second, I'm seeing things evolving here from a technology products perspective. We got to get more people involved in this as we want to reach a much larger audience. So you did a combination. You told everyone from the computer superstores and the guys that were already doing computers how to properly sell to consumers. And then you told all the traditional retailers, hey, the train's leaving the station. You better get on. You went out to folks like Walmart, Best Buy, Staples, Depot. Yeah. Leach, yeah. I covered all this history. You haven't thought about these names probably, but I think about this stuff because these were the fun times. You brought all of that together at Maricel and you created a new division there called the CPD. And I just, and one other pillar that's fundamental is you taught the tech companies how to sell to these retailers that change their, not only their product, but the packaging and the marketing and the supply chain of how you got to deliver these products in a new way. And it was, it, I mean, the word revolutionary gets overused, but don't you feel like <laughs> looking back, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I, you know, it, we look back, you know, Keith, when we all got into this stuff, I, I, you know, even in college, when I built my first MIPS MSI kit, you know, and, and then K-Pro when we were using a CPM operating system and a Zilog Z80 chip running it, you know, under two megahertz and now my phone has more power than the mainframes of that day. And, you know, it's just remarkable, the shift that happened. But, you know, all of what you just said about my Maricel retail expansion experience came from that, that I, 
I early on, even in my early 20s, knew that there was something magical about this device, which we didn't even have the word personal computer yet. And I question whether or not they're even personal to this day. We haven't quite delivered on that promise. But, you know, clearly it was fun and it was freeing. And it came out of our 60s meme of freedom and liberation and and independence, and it gave me a sense of that. And so when I went to, you know, Sam Walton at Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, or, or you know, uh, Circuit City or, or Stemberg at Staples, you know, all the CEOs, 1989, and I said, if you're not selling computer products, you're dead in three years. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. Because to them, they were white goods, you know, they just got really ramped into cell phone, um, they had no idea. And they said, you know, we can't sell computers. We don't know how to support them. We don't know how to service them. We don't know how to sell them. You know, that's a specialty gig for these retailers, which we called chains, you know. Um, and I said, well, the truth is your customers are going to want to buy these. And if you want them to go across the street, um, they will. And, and, and those people are going to start selling other stuff like phones and things like that. So you're going to lose your customer. So it was out of that fear game that I played a little bit. Um, kind of ashamed about that, but it worked. And it, they gave me a little bit of footprint. You know, I remember launching Montgomery Ward on a Saturday in one store. And I'm setting up a display. And, and it was uh, it was a DOS, you know, and... <laughs> Silly me trying to sell an operating system in Walmart right at the beginning, right? It, you know, I should have been selling flight sim. But anyway, I got these boxes and I'm setting up the display and the manager comes over, he picks up one of the boxes, says, Ms. Dose, what is this, a feminine hygiene product? <laughs> That's the level of ignorance that existed at that time. And it was pre-Windows even. And then when Windows 3 came, I shipped $8 million worth of that product the first day of launch. I was the largest shipping customer for Microsoft, predominantly because I put it on 8,500 shelves wow. almost in a single day. Wow. So, the, yeah, the supply chain, the logistics, the in-store merchandising, you know, I had to have people physically in the stores, in all of these stores, Walmart, Sam's, Price Club, Pace, Montgomery Ward, Office Depot, Staples, all of the Best Buy later, all of these people, uh, we needed people physically in the store to receive the product, put it on the shelf, put the right number of facings, et cetera, talk to the management, talk to the salespeople. So from that, we established a whole lot of side companies. We started the Merchandising Solutions Company, which uh, Jim Alexander ran for me. And we were we started a, a distribution arm that did more than pick, pack, and ship the core business of Maricel, any distributor, of course. And, you know, they care, they acted as a bank as well because we carried credit in the channel. But we had to pick, pack, label, and ship. And the label had to be a UPC barcode. Now, that sounds crazy because everything has them today. But in 89, no computer SKU had a barcode on it. That's why I say this was revolutionary. All the things you did collectively just changed the game. Well, it, it, it opened the doors so that the Ma and Pa and Sally and Jimmy and, you know, uh, the high schoolers, 
you know, it was no longer the engineering guys. It was no longer the, you know, guys like us that really wanted to tinker around with new stuff. It was mainstream. Yeah. And, and yeah, we, we spent three years uh, ramping and, you know, you know, you know, you, you brought out computer retail week, you know, a publication focused on retail. We had computer merchandising magazine. We had others, but computer reseller news, it, it took them a while to, see the value and credibility before they really got strong into the game as did you know my big friends down the road and not far from us at ingram they all watched you man they all watched and took notes and and uh replicated a lot of what you did and and on your back (laughs) but that's how the game is right i mean that's yeah and, and and the truth was um we were smart enough to realize that to the extent that we could add enough value to our customers, in this case, the retailers, whether they were consumer electronics, yeah. office product, superstore, mass merchandise, you know, their yeah. membership club, there were different categories that we'd group them into and built services unique to each category, um, that we were an extension of their business. We were a part of their planogramming, the, the software they used. We built our own software. Uh, to help link into their software. We were part of their merchandising group to to tell them how to price it. We were literally putting Circuit City labels with Circuit City part numbers and Circuit City pricing on every box we shipped them. Well, that cost me 55 cents per label. When you amortized all the cost and all the extra effort, 55 cents, um, I was shipping to stores. That cost me 2% more. Uh, than shipping to a warehouse and let that retailer's warehouse put it out to stores. So I added up the total cost to be about 5% incremental to what my normal distribution um, costs were. So I went to the vendors, as you well know, and I and I said, belly up. If you want to be a player, it's going to cost you seven points more. Yeah. And it's not MDF. It's not all the back end soft dollar stuff. It's a hard operational cost. I'm going to report out every month. You're going to write me a check. And they did. Yeah, I actually remember some of our symposium days and our ah. <laughs> things metamorphosized, if that's the right word, in interesting ways and in all different spaces. But again, I can't believe you remember all the minutia, the data, but just, that's your brain. And uh, um, it was just uh, foundational in how that set us on a, on a path. But this is called the look back. So when you think about those days, I know I have lots of thoughts about how I might have added this feature or, or done that. What do you think about that that might have changed the, not the longevity, not that uh, you could have excised the CPG or uh, CPD side um, and, and started some other business. But what are your thoughts about when you look back on that? Besides lots of great relationships and memories too. Well, you know, there was very little that, I mean, looking back, quite frankly, um, half of my time was spent overcoming the obstacles, the deniers, they can't be done, it shouldn't be done, you're crazy, you know, all of that stuff, right? I mean, I was talking about EDI to CompTIA back when it was, you know, <laughs> better business, you know, the ABCD, right? Uh, about create, you know, buying into the ANSI X12 standard around which data could be shared freely, regardless of platform. It was ecumenical to a vendor, um, and it would give data 
a great sense of value. And of course, now we know we're moving into the age of data and data is generating insights out at the edge. Well, I was out at the edge 35 years ago, collecting data on consumer behavior. And from that, we fabricated the consumer, uh, the consumer awards. Remember the Consumer's Choice Awards? Yes. Um, which was basically just sell through data that we'd collect from all the product and whichever was selling the best, we'd report out, we'd, we'd award a trophy and you know, at a big annual gathering. So we made it fun, but meaningful, but it was really about creating um, a, an ongoing sense of value. I knew, however, that there would come a time when the big box players, Walmart, would clearly disintermediate us. Yeah. You know, as soon as they figured it out, they would take that on as a major category, as would all of our major players. I, I got that, and I even told them, I'm perfectly fine helping educate you to my own obsolescence. And I, I think that was one of the strongest plays that we did. I, I know I took a lot of heat for that, but you know, I, I felt that if you could bring value without trying to secure your own place in it, then your place would be secured naturally. And I think that's one of the lessons learned. And I don't think that's something that gets applied in today's world. I think Facebook and Google, the, the, you know, I, I'm, I love those companies. I work closely uh, with many people within them um, on a technical level. And, and I get that they want to create, uh, you know, barriers to entry, right? So that they have not just differentiation, but a lock-in. Um, Microsoft was masterful at that, as we well know back in the yeah. day. But I don't think that's uh, serving uh, the world any longer. I don't think that mindset um, is useful. Um, and I, I think if they focus on a new sense of a new balance sheet, you know, one that is focus more around the creation of uh, sustainable value, then the bottom line will improve naturally. And so I think we're, we're moving into this, um, as my friend Antonio Neri, CEO at HP said, we're, we're in the age of insights. And so how do you help to accelerate insight within every business transaction, within every workflow, within every practice, every interaction? internally and externally how do you create value if we all focused on that we're focusing more on the outputs whereas back in the day we focused on the inputs you know how many yeah, dials per day right Brother casey you've been remarkably consistent in these themes of the natural energy and the and the focus on value creation remarkably consistent and i you know i sat at your feet um, metaphorically for a few years there as editor of, of Retail Week, as an editor for CRN, right? And, and you taught me a lot of these things. I went to school on you. I was so bored when I'd visit LA, I'd have to come visit Casey, you know, to kind of hang out for a day. And, and we drove around, we, we hung out in your office, we went to the beach, whatever we did, man. We just had so much fun talking about this stuff. But again, you, I saw your stress with both the internal and external challenges, um, but also saw the progress, the development um, when I got to sit on my on my pulpit, right? <laughs> Managing all those four well, eight kinds of issues. And that pulpit gave you a perspective right. that few of us had. I mean, 
you and I had a relationship on many dimensions, um, not just because I liked you. <laughs> you know, we shared some interest in martial arts. We had, we were parents, dads, raising kids. We, you know, we were innovators in technology. We loved channel, all things channel. Um, you were connected in a, a lot of places and, and always one that was open to sharing that freely, as was I. Um, that's not necessarily the norm. Um, and so I found that that was quite unique. Now, you know quite well, I've lived a spiritual life my, my whole life. I've been to India 55 times now. I, I'm building a temple in India right now, actually, and I have a temple right here in, in my backyard that's open to the public. I teach meditation, and my wife, uh, Anka, she's a healer. And So we've always come from this core sense that everyone gets to the same place. We may start from many different places. We may take many different paths, but there's only one ending for all of us. And so I, I wanted to let people be who they needed to be, but and honor the fact that, that in that difference, there was some beauty and some value um, and knowing that it wasn't a threat to me. I, was, I didn't see it as competitive. A Look Back has been sponsored by private equity capital management platform and cap table software product, Estrella.com. Check out Estrella. It's a fantastic product that is sweeping startup nation. If you need cap table software, check them out at Estrella, A-S-T-R-E-L-L-A.com. And sasmax.com for those SaaS companies looking to build the optimal channel for partners and resellers leverage the best platform you can at sasmax.com if i i remember with kathy colder and fries um, and you might remember this we um, we were at the grand opening of their store up there in northern california the store right off of the stanford campus and uh, they had a VIP opening, um, and what was his name? He was heading up the consumer division, of the newly formed one at Ingram, Greg Hawkins. Yeah, Greg Hawkins. So he was there, and I I already had the the fries bulk of the fries account as I did all the retailers. I had ninety percent market share basically, um, and so he was. He was lurking behind the corner as I was talking, uh, kind of listening in, you know, and I turned, I saw him hiding. I said, hey, Greg, get over here. So he comes over and, and uh, that one of the media photographers was there. I said, hey, take a picture of Greg and I. So we put our arms around each other and took a snap. I have that picture to this day and I got it and I signed it and I said, who says competitors can't be friends? And I sent it to him and he signed it and sent it back and we had two copies made. So we both carried that in our offices as a reminder that at the end of the day, you know, we're all going to the same place. Uh, how we get there can vary. And so innovation gives us that differentiation. Maybe we get the leg up a little bit, but that's not so important, really. It's funny, it's, Chase. I mean, such great perspective. And thanks for sharing. I was going to get there, but I wanted to let it go naturally, too. Um, so, some of your uh, philosophies and, and some of your visions. The thought though, have we really evolved still on this business level of the competitiveness and the co-opetition level? You're working 
um, doing some great work with HP. You're doing some really cool stuff. I mean, with other folks. Too. 18 years now. Yeah. I can't believe it. Cause I think I was there at day one or early on. Um, but, but where is that still? Like is HP reaching out and bringing more of that collective let's share together is Facebook and Google and Amazon. I mean, we have an Amazon fight with unions going on in one area and they're just the new, whatever Walmart or Staples or maybe a few right. of them combined because there's such a behemoth right now. But I mean, have we evolved? Are we getting better? Are we getting smarter? In some ways, yes. And in many ways, no. Uh, I mean, I'll come back to this one point I want to make now, and that's that we've got to really re-engineer and transform the corporate balance sheet. This is the scorecard for corporations, right? And it's out of balance, and it's been out of balance for decades. I'll come back to that for a moment, but uh, you know, in terms of you know the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Googles and you know all the big players, um, you know, is it really right? for Amazon to maintain a marketplace whereby they allow vendor startups to come in and reach millions instantly with a distribution channel. And those that are successful, then they go private label that very same product out in China and offer it at 30% less money and put that little vendor out of business. Is that really a fair business trade practice? Well, from the current corporate balance sheet, it would say absolutely. But I don't believe that that's in balance. I don't believe that that's really serving the entire community. I think it ultimately stifles innovation. Um, it stifles kind of a race ethics to the and morality. <laughs> yeah, kind of a race to the bottom. Yeah, it is a race to the bottom. Now, you know, as you well know, I was friends with the founder and CEO of Visa International, D. Hawk, and I was one of the 30 on his original. Um, chaotic Alliance Council, and we were trying to re-energize, right, right? Um, the idea that um, that natural systems, like Peter Senge was doing the work, great work up at MIT, you know, um, natural systems was offering us a model from which we could pattern organizational design, and and the Center for Organizational Design up at Berkeley right now, headed up by one of my mentors, a great physicist, Friedhof Kapra, is is still, you know, helping to bring that awareness on a very large scale. Um, but if we measure only the physical assets of our inventory, our revenue based on sale, uh, our cost of goods, all of these kinds of things, the tangible assets that are easily articulated in light item detail on a balance sheet, we're missing the true asset of the enterprise. Yeah. You know, you, you look back at Lotus, <clears throat> bless you. You know, when IBM bought Lotus, you remember what they paid for them? No. $3.2 billion. Yeah. You know what they had? You know what they had as tangible assets on their balance sheet? Uh, <laughs> less. <laughs> 750 million, mm. right? You got, two and a half billion dollars in value that can't be detailed out in a balance sheet. And yet that was the true value. That's what IBM bought, right? They bought their head of technology who, who, who created notes. They bought the notes code and platform. They bought market share, the brand, which they of course squandered <laughs> horribly. <laughs> yeah. um, and Ozzy ended up going off to Microsoft where he still resides. But 
the point I'm making is it was a great lesson for corporate America to realize that their real value is something they're not even measuring. And if you don't measure it, how can you manage it? If you're not managing it, how can you improve on it? Customer relationships, big, big part of your balance sheet. Uh, employee retention. You know, if you're turning employees like Facebook and others tend to do, Amazon clearly, at over 30% annually, that's huge cost to your balance sheet. Yeah. If you could reduce your your employee turnover by a basis point, it saves you millions of dollars annually and it's bottom line dollars. So, you know, why aren't you measuring these kinds of things? So I, I think to get to your point, change has been slow. Um, it's been painful in some ways, but it has been coming. I think people are realizing uh, that I, see, I don't... I see, I see a couple things like in... Um health and wellness areas, get that getting slowly integrated into some corporate programs and benefits programs, um, reaching out to employees. This whole remote work thing is going to be really interesting, um, how that gets managed and supported, the work at home, work at office. And and, and what are the social implications, right? Fewer cars on the road, less traffic, less fuel consumption, better climate impacts. You know, I mean, there's more to a zero carbon footprint. But even bigger, even beyond all of those, the one metric that underscores all of that, which Francis Fukuyama wrote, you know, in his wonderful book by that title from the Rand Corporation called Trust. Mm. You know, it's the one thing that is the social capital of our current social fabric. And it's the one thing that you, you spend lifetimes developing and an instant can lose. And I think that's the one lesson that is being lost on many of these um, corporations. They're, they're losing the sense of value and trust. And the minute you breach your employee relationship, your customer relationship, your vendor relationship, you lose trust. So what's, and that, what's your counsel then? Let's take this in a more prescriptive direction and saying, if we have a couple friends out there and maybe there are kids these days who are running companies with a nod to yours and mine and things like that. But what are we telling them in terms of how they look at their balance sheet and their businesses in a more um, uh, forward thinking way? Well, <laughs> you know, some of this work was done in 1967, right? When the, when the Council of Ten were gathering in San Francisco, each representing a financial institution that themselves were the most highly competitive, highly regulated, highly differentiated business on the planet. You know, Bank of America, Citibank, Morgan Stanley, Bank of Thai, all of these. And Dee Hawk, who came out of a fifth grade education on a pig farm, married his fifth grade sweetheart, by the way, and they're married to this day. And he was chosen to lead this because they just kind of wanted to put it off to the side. They really didn't want to deal with it, so they just gave it to a low-level person. Well, 16 years later, Visa International is serving up a network doing two trillion transactions a day, representing every financial institution in the world. You see today the logo Visa. Who owns it? All the people own it. It's a member-owned non-stock corporation. So we have a pattern that dates way back yeah. that could be utilized today 
uh, and Harvard Business uh, has done studies around it. You know, what does the balance sheet look like? Scandinavian Air, you know, Jan Carlson, a CEO, he took that model. He implemented some of the changes. He went to his employees and said, look, if there's a coffee stain on the tray of any one of the seats in our planes, our customer is going to translate that as we don't maintain our engines and they won't trust our flying. Yeah. He saw it in that context. That's the level of context we need to bring to the vision for the new leadership we have. Yes, Hewlett Packard has that. Antonio Neri, I think, is a brilliant, heartfelt. You know, he comes in in a T-shirt and Levi jeans and seven bangles on his wrist, and he'll just sit there and, and talk to anyone. When COVID was open, he opened up the entire patent library to the world which accelerated much of the vaccine research that was done, the clinical trials that were being done. A lot of that happened because of the patents that were freely given out for use by the CEO of HPE. We have another great example that they had, I won't mention the company, but he's uh, the leadership of uh, healthcare industries for the World Economic Forum. And I was talking to him recently. He said that in the next decade, 85% of all healthcare will be delivered in the home. Now, wrap your head around that for a minute, right? Well, I've been slowly experiencing it, so. I yeah, and, and yeah, slowly, right? That's a great term. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I remember in 1994, uh, when I started Cell Line at Maricel, it was the first online catalog uh, for our products. I took I took a, a catalog that was two inches thick, which we produced every quarter, right, and eliminated it. Everybody thought I was nuts. And we put it on a, a CD and we gave it out to all our retailers and they could look up catalog pricing and then I put it online and then they could order online yeah. within that year. Yeah. And, you know, people, including our CEO said, ain't gonna happen. And sure, the first year, 2% of our orders went online versus calling in the inside salesperson. But the next year, 20%. And today it'd be 100% almost, right? Right, right? So how long does it take? What's the ramp? What's the timeline for meaningful change to happen? Sure, it's slower than you and I would ever like to know. Sure. And well, that's so funny, Casey. You and I are there at the beginning of email and internet and smartphones, right? And I know you yeah. have a strong... Um, background in, in chemistry, biology, right? Physics. And so it's like, okay, what what are going to be the next major revolutions? Everyone talking about AI and, and virtual reality, of course, and I think those are true, but those don't seem like as much applied technologies as what we were talking about with email and, and the internet and the browser and all that stuff. It's going to be really- Well, let me, let me give you an example. First of all, I said earlier, the, the number one capital source in the new economies is trust. So anything that can establish trust is a good thing. Now, back in the day when Napster and Morpheus and others were, were doing you know online file sharing uh, without the licensing uh, of the content owners, um, you know we went through a whole paradigm shift, right? This was the first time that files could be shared across a peer-to-peer -peer network and and the enabling technology, which came out of a company called FutureNet, uh, 
and they, they, you know, they built a wonderful new paradigm, which is being utilized today by everybody, including Google. I mean, it's essentially even the data center model for Google, a distributed model, not a centralized server model, uh, which gives them the performance and the speed and the scalability they need. But uh, I was uh, an acting COO for a time for a company called World Media. And, and we took the three of the engineers from FutureNet were the engineers at World Media and and we built a platform called Peer Impact. And you know, so it was a legal file sharing device. Now, I was in Washington DC on the day the Supreme Court had their hearing and their final say around the Morpheus lawsuits, right? And they cited Peer Impact and World Media in their transcripts as the only legitimate way of doing it. You know what made us different? Beyond the fact that we went to all five labels and got their licensed approval to distribute their product, but we built a distribution scheme online that recognized the entire, entire supply chain, including the source of the song. So if you were in the network and you had Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, and I wanted to buy that album at 9.95, and it downloaded from your computer to mine. It, our our server pool managed that transaction securely, et cetera. But it also then paid you 10% in the transaction, and it gave the label, you know, their, you know, two and a half cents for the artist and the producer, and you know, everybody was acknowledged in the entire supply chain. We built the only system at the time that had trust built into it because anybody that brought value to the entire network was acknowledged financially as well as socially. Where does that exist today? So I'm saying, where do we go from here? I think we start looking at our distribution partnerships. Where's the real trust that's enabled in it? How do we compete uh, like sports teams, you know, you get out on the field, you, you're, you're going at it toe to toe and afterwards you go have a beer together, right? I mean, this is all a game, <laughs> it's all a game. But at the end of the game, we're all connected in ways beyond our rational mind's understanding. And we all want the same thing, happiness and the avoidance of pain. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's not how much money I have when I leave this earthly mortal coil, but it's how much joy did I bring? How many people could I uplift? How much, how much better did I leave the world and anything that I touched in it? That's the scorecard that we need. And when we start driving our own behaviors around that kind of scorecard, then our balance sheet in corporate America will reflect that kind of scorecard. And I will tell you, We'll start to see, you know, global warming going away because we honor our planet and each other. And, and you know, we'll see suicide rates dropping. We'll see healthcare costs drop, you know, all the things that are pandemic to the current way of, of seeing things. I don't mean to be, you know, on the pulpit or anything. I'm a bit passionate about some of this. <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> And not that I thought any of that would dissipate at, uh, despite our, our uh, lack of connecting. I know um, through our digital uh, connections that you're maintaining your 
um, your vision, your philosophy, and your views. And I, I'm glad you're sharing them in new areas also, areas that might be more responsive, more receptive uh, to what you're doing. Give me a little bit more detail. And I know I'm actually 10 minutes over where I normally do for my shows, but wow, AC, can I tell you, there's no way that we were going to hold to it a 30 minute sesh. So give me a view though, <laughs> put me and, and my, my friends here into one of your sessions down there. What does that look like? And I know there's lots of different things, but take us out with some, uh, with some of those um, thoughts in terms of, of how you're structuring and, and, and sharing and counseling. I haven't, uh, I haven't been down to Ananda and Sunitas. Yeah. It all begins, you know, with, kindness, um, empathy, compassion. I know those are somewhat cliches and bantered words that are meaningless if they're not backed with intention. But the truth is, we are all saints having a human experience. I tell people that all the time. We're not humans having some mystical experience. We tend to forget that. And, and our soul quality is what connects all of us to this creative consciousness. I don't care what label you want to give that. God, Krishna, Buddha, or an atheist. I have friends that come here that are atheists and we have wonderful conversations. But the truth is, we all want to be happy. We all want to avoid pain and we all want to feel that we've contributed to life in meaningful ways. So I always begin with that. Whether it's a healing circle we do every Tuesday or a meditation, which I guide Wednesdays or yoga on Thursdays um, or one-on-one sessions or mentoring business startups. I, I always begin because if we begin to believe that we are worthy of being happy, that we are worthy of success and joy, then we start to remove the mental and somewhat genetically born obstacles that are keeping us from the level of success and, and happiness we so richly deserve. So really, we spend most of our time removing the obstacles. Well, that's, that's beautiful. And again, you're remarkable in, in so many ways. And I thank you for those thoughts. I wish in a way that in, in, not a, um, in not a way to do over, but add to that you could continue to uh, um, inspire and mentor more at scale um, in this community, because I think it's so needed. I think there's an openness to it. Um, as I meet with myself, with a lot of leaders of growth companies and tech companies and in businesses that are looking for ways to grow, but it's a funny word, right? When you say grow, yeah. we, we defer yeah. to revenue, <laughs> and profit, right. Stock profit, right? But yeah. I think we can expand that definition. You're the perfect person to do it. I think uh, the trust label, um, along with your deep knowledge of tech and business, is just uh, we got to we got to keep you busy as I, it sounds like you have been and doing some great things, man. I'm always open people that come to me. I, I don't turn people away. I've been blessed financially. I don't need money. Um, uh, you know, if I can help people, I'm always here to do that. So I'm, you know, if you're listening and you'd like to connect, Keith knows how to reach me. KC, thank you. Blessings to you and all of yours. I can't uh, thank you for your time. And we're yeah together soon. I love you, buddy. Love you too, man. Thank you. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support. Welcome any feedback and would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, 
check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.